Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. My king that I represent is your potter. You are the clay and he is the potter. The whole race of mankind is the clay and he is the potter. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. Yes, He has the power. He has the authority and the right to do as He will with His own. My King is your potter. I read to you Matthew 1 and verse 21. An angel has appeared to Joseph who is troubled because his wife-to-be is pregnant. The angel tells him in verse 21, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Amen. Amen and amen. That is what we believe. Now let's explore it. But before we do so, stand with me and let's ask the Lord's blessing upon our effort. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for the message of the angel that told our brother Joseph that his espoused wife Mary would bring forth a son and he was to name that son Jesus, for He would save His people from their sins. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee this day that by Thy superabundant grace we are Your people and thus have an interest in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and His salvation from sin. We thank Thee that we have a Savior named Jesus And in His name we pray, asking Thee to bless us, to understand the truth of the Gospel. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you'll allow me a few minutes of your time this morning, if you'll allow the Lord, because it's not really me, it's His Word and I present it to you. Let's deal with the subject that in the world is called, the religious world is called limited atonement. Limited atonement, that means that the death of Jesus Christ was not given, nor did He die for all men, but for the elect only. We use the words limited atonement because that is what it's called by those in theological circles who divide Christianity into Calvinism and Arminianism. Calvinism is that form of theology associated with a man named John Calvin, though originating 1,500 years before he put it together, by the Apostle Paul who wrote us the Gospels that we, and the Epistles that we read a few minutes ago. Very simply, for some of you that do not know better, 
You can remember the five points of Calvinism by the acronym TULIP. T stands for total depravity, meaning that man is unable to do anything to please God. U stands for unconditional election, meaning that God chose without seeing any conduct on the part of those He chose that would bring Him to choose them. L stands for limited atonement, that Jesus died only for the elect. I stands for irresistible grace, meaning that God in grace regenerates men, not according to their works, but according to His free grace. And it's irresistible when God chooses to regenerate. And P, perseverance or preservation of the saints. And I am not going to pick those points with you right now. I would be happy to pick them with you at any point in time. Those are the five points of Calvin. There was a man named Jacobus, Jacobus, Jacob Arminius, who lived around the time of Calvin, who took the opposite position on all five points. Man is not totally depraved. He has a free will and he's able to please God for salvation. God did not unconditionally elect. God elected men because of what He saw they would do in life. The atonement is not limited. Jesus died for everyone to make salvation for po- possible for those who would fulfill the conditions. Grace is not irresistible. Most men resist grace. And unless you persevere, you're going to hell. And, not, and God doesn't guarantee your perseverance. That's a true Arminian. The religious world's divided between those two. You can now forget everything I just told you. I just wanted you to know where I got the words limited atonement. That is how it's best understood. Everyone limits the atonement except universalist heretics. A universalist is someone that believes everyone's going to heaven. And there are more and more of those as men become more and more angry about a God that would create a hell for them. So that there are men like Billy Graham, who when he began 60 years ago, preached hell, but who now says, oh no, I don't believe there is such a thing as a burning hell with fire. Remember, I've told you other men that have left that doctrine of hell, because it is such a comforting lie to believe that we're all going to heaven. Everyone limits the atonement. The Armenians limit the atonement in that it doesn't accomplish a thing. It was spent, and the blood of Christ was spilt, and He suffered the wrath of God as much for those in hell as He did for those in heaven. Now that's limiting the death of Jesus Christ because it accomplishes nothing. The difference between those in hell and those in heaven is entirely and only based on what they did. Not what Christ did for them. We limit the atonement not in its power, but in its design. God intended Jesus Christ to save His people from their sins. And that's what we believe. Men hate this doctrine because it makes God the sovereign of the universe and He doesn't owe you eternal life. Men think that because we're men, we deserve second chances, third chances, fourth chances, And God has to love us. It doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. It makes me so ill to hear men talking about God being fair or not fair. And our brother Chad just read Romans chapter 9 to you that dealt with that plainly. 
God can do anything He wants with the lump of clay called humanity, and He is most fair. And you do not even have the right to question what He has done. Who art thou, O man, that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to Him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? What is the answer to that question? Shall the thing formed ask questions like that? No. We do not even have a right to question that. But men want to question it. Not only do they want to question it, they want to overturn it. They cannot stand a God that holds their eternal destiny in His hand and chooses to give it to some and to withhold it from others. He is not unfair. He is gracious in saving any. If God were fair, we would all go to hell. That is fairness. He would give us what we deserve. But He's gracious and He saves some. When you meet a Calvinist, they're so funny. Many Calvinists will say, well, I'm a four-point Calvinist. Whenever you hear a man say, I'm a four-point Calvinist, that means I want some of the intellectual esteem that are given to Calvinists, but I have to reject that middle point L, limited atonement, because I just can't go that far. So even those that call themselves Calvinists are oftentimes four-pointers. You'll hear that a lot at Bob Jones, you children, if you'll ask around a little bit. They're four-pointers because... They don't want to accept the fact that Jesus died only for the elect. So funny. Our fathers in the faith that came from England to this country and from Wales to this country were called Particular Baptists. That was their name. Particular Baptists. Particular Baptists means that they believe Jesus died a particular death for a particular people. Amen. They were opposed to another group of Baptists called General Baptists that believed Jesus died a general death for men in general. And that was the difference between Baptists 300 and 400 years ago when they first began coming to this continent. Right. We're particular Baptists. You know, the term limited atonement is self-proving that we are correct. Limited atonement. What it means is Jesus died only for the elect. Well, the word atonement means made at one with God. Think about the word or look at it. Atone is at one. It means to be reconciled with someone so that you're at one again in unity. Well, now, is everyone made at one again with God? No, only the elect are. So the words themselves, limited atonement, are self-proving that only some, only the elect, are made at one again with God. To say, I believe in unlimited atonement, means that hell is going to be empty. Because everyone will have been made at one again with God. But that is not the case, as the Bible tells us plainly. We begin our assumption knowing that we need a Savior. We begin our study with that assumption. We have to have a Savior, because we have Adam's sin applied to our account legally, We have a corrupt nature, and we keep sinning every day of our lives. How will we be allowed into heaven when the Bible says that no sin will be allowed in that place? We need a Savior. We also need to realize as we begin a study like this, that God does not owe eternal life to anyone. 
That is such a corrupt, arrogant, proud attitude that men have that God owes us eternal life. That it would be wrong to take men and send them to hell for their sins. But I never hear, and you've heard me say this many times before, I never hear them arguing on behalf of the devil. Why aren't they arguing on behalf of the devil that it's not fair because he got a little puffed up one day that God should reserve him in everlasting chains for eternal torment? Why don't they argue on behalf of the devil? It's very simple. They are incredibly selfish and self-centered and think of themselves so highly they have no interest in a being that was created so much higher than they were whose name was Lucifer and is now the devil and Satan. Because they're selfish. It is not because they have any theological concern. It's not the glory of God that they're interested in. It's not God's fairness or not. It's because they're selfish. And so we start our study by blowing that all away. We do not know anything about God's choices in the human race and His dealings with them without this book. We are Bible Christians in that we are dependent on the Bible for knowing anything about how God deals with us. You can go outside at night and look up and see the, the moon and the stars. You can go out during the day and see the sun. And the Bible says they preach a sermon in every language of the earth. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. Their line has gone out through all the earth. There is no language where their voice is not heard. Everyone can look up and know that there is a Godhead with eternal power. But that's all you can know by the creation. To know about Jesus Christ and for whom He died and why He died for them and not others, all of it is left up to Holy Scripture. It has nothing to do with your feelings of what is fair or right or wrong at all. Your feelings are so twisted and corrupt because you are a sinner and you are selfish and you are self-centered and the only person you truly love is yourself. That's why you want another chance and a third chance and why God owes you salvation. But He owes no man salvation. He owes Himself glory and He'll always give it to Himself. And He gets glory by making a division in the human race, which is the doctrine of election. It's a basic fact of the Bible, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. But the question of the day is, which sinners did Jesus Christ come into the world to save? Let me briefly tell you about a man named John Owen, born in 1616, who died in the 1680s. He was the chaplain for Oliver Cromwell. He went to Cambridge when he was 12. That doesn't mean anything. I'm just telling you about him. But he wrote a book back then. It was published in 1647 called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And what it was, was a fantastic argument taking the verses of Scripture and putting them together to prove that Jesus died only for the elect. That doctrine was once well understood. Let me take you back a moment ago. We sang a song, When Thou My Righteous Judge Shall Come. Brother Jeff complained about the inadequacy of our previous hymnal because for that song it didn't give much credit to the author of the words. The Countess of Huntingdon in England. 
Selena Shirley. And if you read a little bit about her, she left the Church of England because she was sick of its formality and joined the Methodists because they were excited about worshiping God. But she joined the Methodists and was a radical Calvinist. And so she was in trouble with them and in trouble with the Church of England altogether. And in her lifetime, they estimate she spent 100,000 pounds on building chapels across England to teach the truth. She wrote those words, When thou, my righteous judge, shall come, and that when we get to heaven, we're going to be shouting the strains of sovereign grace. You know, when I hear a woman writing songs like that, that's a woman. That's a real woman. That's a glorious woman in the earth. She built chapels all across England, not knowing the full truth from the little bit I'm able to find out about her. Combining Methodism with Calvinism, but knowing that salvation is of the Lord. And Jesus Christ only died for the elect. And she wanted to know in that song that we just sang a few moments ago, is my name in the book of life. You know, that's the issue that we want to ask. Everyone else in the world today thinks that all you have to do is come down the aisle. We'll kneel for a moment. I'll repeat two sentences for you to copy. And you can get your name written down right now. You'll jump up and we'll sing. There's a new name written down in glory. But there are no new names written down in glory. Because all the names that are there were written before the foundation of the world. When God chose His elect, His people, from Matthew one twenty one. And gave them to the Lord Jesus Christ to save. John Owen starts his book off, and it's a whole book, to prove that Jesus died only for the elect. He starts off by saying, The Lord Jesus Christ suffered the wrath of God for, and satisfied the justice of God for, either some of the sins of all men, all of the sins of all men, Or all of the sins of some men. Praise the Lord for option C. If you're taking a multiple choice quiz this morning, we take C. He died for all the sins of some men, guaranteeing the salvation of His elect. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. This is a distinguishing mark of our church. This separates us from the other Baptist churches in Greenville County. There may be 500 of them this morning. But this puts us in one handful of churches that might believe this doctrine, and we certainly do, and we'll preach it. We'll preach it and we'll say amen to it because we love it. Because we're thankful for a king that is a victorious Savior who will not lose one that he died for. They are preaching a Savior this morning that is a loser from beginning to end. He will lose most of those for whom he died. He will spend eternity disappointed at the terrible success of His redemption plan. Because you didn't give enough money and you didn't go to the mission field to get His work finished. We have a Savior that said, it is finished. And He meant it. Their Savior didn't even get it started when He said, it is finished. Because it was still entirely dependent upon your selfish little soul and your empty little pocketbook to get people into heaven. What kind of a finished work is that? It's nowhere described like that in the Bible. Those chapters we just read, it's a finished work. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And whom He called, He justified. And whom He justified, He glorified. Do you see anyone falling out of that chain? 
What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Well, what about a lazy missionary? Could that be against you? Not a chance. The Lord Jesus Christ is the apostle and high priest of our profession. And he will lose none of them. And we shall see those verses this morning. Brethren, look at these words by the angel to Joseph. Don't you worry, Joseph, about Mary being pregnant ahead of your marriage. Because what she has in her was conceived in her by the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. It doesn't say he shall offer people salvation from their sins. He shall save his people from their sins. This is what we believe. It is a shame that doctrine has fallen by the wayside, brethren. No one wants to stand for sound doctrine anymore. In 1644, our Baptist fathers in London, England, wrote the first London Confession of Faith, and they declared unequivocally for this doctrine. Jesus died only for the elect. In 1655, the country churches around London, called the Midlands Confession of Faith, declared for the same doctrine. In 1689, 100 Baptist congregations in London, England, declared for this doctrine. In 1690s, a group of men from Kettering, Maine, got in a boat because the Puritans were persecuting them and came down the Atlantic seacoast and settled at Charleston and built the first Baptist church of Charleston and they declared for the doctrine that I preached to you this morning. In 1742, the Philadelphia Association of Baptist Churches made the first confession of faith in this country and they declared for this doctrine. In 1858, the Southern Baptist Convention put together their principles to guide the Southern Baptist Convention and they implied this doctrine in one of their paragraphs. But brethren, today, no one believes it anymore. Jesus came to die a specific death, a particular death, and to provide salvation for all those that God the Father had given Him, brethren. That is the truth of the Gospel. And it's almost lost on the earth today. And all of our children need to remember these things. We believe in limited atonement. Jesus came and saved everyone that God gave Him to save. He did not lose a single one. He didn't come to make salvation possible. He came to complete and finish our salvation. It's a huge difference in the Gospel. I bring you good news of glad tidings. They bring you a story about a Savior that didn't get the job done and a God who didn't plan it very well. Because what He did was make salvation possible for men that are unable to please God. Now, if you make salvation possible and you have a group of men that are unable to do anything to please God, you completely empty heaven because no one can possibly be saved. Turn to Luke chapter 1 and let's see that there was more statements about Jesus saving His people. If Jesus Christ came to save His people from their sins, then that tells us in that one verse... He didn't come to save those who were not His people from their sins. He has always had His people. As far back as Genesis chapter 12, and and farther than that, but I want to start with 12. In Genesis 12, God told Abraham, I will bless thee and thy seed. And that seed was the Lord Jesus Christ and all those that God had put in Him. Because Galatians 3 tells us that. And if he be Christ... Then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. 
He's always had His people. And it wasn't the whole nation of Israel. It was a remnant within the nation. If the Lord of Sabbath had not left us a very small remnant, we had been unlike unto Sodom and Gomorrah. Luke chapter 1. Zacharias is speaking by inspiration of God. Because his wife is about to have John the Baptist. And we read in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He hath visited and redeemed His people. Now we know He didn't visit and redeem the nation, because that wasn't His purpose. He came to visit and redeem His people within the nation. And those that were outside of the nation. Because in John chapter 11, when Caiaphas prophesied, he said that he is going to gather together in one all his sheep, all his children from across the whole earth in the Lord Jesus Christ. His people includes you. And that was his choice. And when it says that he hath visited and redeemed his people, that by itself is enough to tell us he did not visit and redeem those who were not his people. There is a constant division being made in the Word of God about those who are His people and those who are not. Now, brethren, there is within us that selfish spirit that says that's not fair for God to send some men to hell and take some men to heaven. I agree. It is not fair. Why in the world would He take any to heaven? Do you understand that difference? Brother LaSare Bradley, who's a primitive Baptist preacher in Cincinnati, Ohio, tells the story before he came to his complete conversion to the gospel that I'm telling you this morning and preaching to you this morning. He remembers an old lady coming up to him and a sister in the church that he was visiting where he was preaching and told him the story about an objection made against election where someone had said, it's just not fair that God would hate Esau. The old woman told Brother Bradley, it's not fair that God would love Jacob. Now, what's your perspective this morning? That it's not fair that God would hate Esau? Or it's not fair that God would love Jacob? That isn't fair for God to love any of us. If you were God, I'll tell you what you would have done, and I can guarantee you what I would have done. If I'd had a race that I had created and put on this earth in a perfect environment stand up against me and defy me, I'd have annihilated them all. That would have been fair. And you should all be able to relate to that. No one wants to argue on behalf of the devil, which I find so inconsistent when they start talking about fairness. Let's turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 in our Bible. Praise the Lord for Romans 5, 8, and 9 that you had read to you this morning. The first first thing we want to do is look at a few arguments based on the intent of the atonement. What was God's intention by sending Jesus Christ? We've just seen the angel's words in Matthew 1.21, Zacharias' words in Luke 1.68. Now we come to Romans chapter 9. Verse 21, Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? When a potter sits at that spinning wheel and he has clay in a bucket, can he take that clay and make something beautiful and take that clay and make something ugly? Does he have a right to do what he wants to with his clay? 
That's the issue of Romans 9.21. Do you really believe that? If you ever want to get close to God, you'll believe that with all your heart and you'll fall on your face before Him and beg Him for mercy. Because He is the potter and He has the authority over the clay. And that is an apt description of our difference between us and God and the difference between a potter and the clay in a bucket. Does He have the authority and the right and the privilege to do so? Definitely yes. That is a rhetorical question from the pen of Paul from the Holy Spirit's mind. Yes, He has that right. Verse 22. What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which He had afore prepared unto glory, even us, whom He hath called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles." This tells us God's intent in sending Jesus Christ. God's will was active in the salvation plan for men. But notice what His will chose. His will chose in verse 22 that there would be some vessels made from that clay of humanity that would be vessels of destruction, vessels of wrath. Upon them, He would show His power and His wrath against sin. That is fair. He should have put us all in that number. That is fair. We sinned against the God of heaven in the Garden of Eden, and you sin every day against Him. You haven't loved Him the way you should have since He is your Creator this week. We deserve to be in that number. And that is, this is the Word of God. This is what the Bible teaches. What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, out of the lump of humanity, made some to display His wrath and His power? And they're called the vessels of wrath because that's what they're going to get. That's what we all deserve. That verse right there by itself proves us that there is a limited atonement because in that verse, God's intent for those people is not for them to be atoned for. They are not going to be made at one again with God. They are going to be left in their rebellion and enmity against the Most High God, which they chose most freely. Verse 23. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. Here's some of that same clay formed into vessels of mercy. He's going to show mercy on this group of humanity made from the same clay of the same lump. And notice he's afore prepared them to glory. He has already guaranteed the whole work for them that they're going to end up in glory. And isn't that what we read in Romans chapter 8? The ones He foreknew ended up glorified? They end up in glory. Not a single one is lost. But here we have two different kind of vessels. A vessel of wrath and a vessel of mercy. He came to save the vessels of mercy and He did not. He came to show His wrath and His power in the vessels of wrath. This is the Word of the Lord. So verse 23 tells us that there's a limited atonement because there's only vessels of mercy that He's prepared to glory. Then we come to verse 24. Look what it says. Even us, whom He hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now listen, sometimes it's the little words in the Bible that make the big difference. And the little word here is of. Not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Jesus Christ did not come to fulfill the will of God for all the Jews and all the Gentiles, but He came 
to make some vessels of mercy out of the Jews and out of the Gentiles. And those are the ones He's going to save. The, the, limit, the, the Bible teaches limited atonement. The Bible teaches a limited design and intent by God in the salvation of sinners. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. Let's look at some arguments based on... This, this study could go on for a long time. And you know when it's got to end. And I hope that uh, if you want to see more, by the time this outline hits the internet, you will have lots of different arguments that you can think about from your New Testaments on this subject. It'll be available for you in just a few hours or a day or two after we finish this sermon if you want more. I'm going to tell you something. If you want to exalt the love of God for sinners, you have to believe election and you have to believe Jesus died only for the elect. Otherwise, His love is worthless. His love didn't do a thing. The ones in hell should be singing about the love of God as much as those in heaven because just as much love was shown toward them as the ones in heaven. Now that just destroys the love of God. They think that they're exalting the love of God by spreading it to all men, but they're not. They're diluting it down until it means nothing. He was unable to save for sure anyone. We believe He saved everyone without the loss of a single one, and there is nothing. There is nothing. Didn't you hear that when it was read to you by Brother Paul? There is nothing, not height nor depth, not things present, not things to come, not principalities, angels, powers. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that is love. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with the cords of love. And you will be saved. That's love. I was trying to talk to my daughter this morning. If a whoremonger in town had taken every other girl in the city and asked her out on a date, what would it mean? Nothing. What if a true gentleman and a successful one at that who had never shown any interest in anyone else asked her out on a date? Would that mean something? The love of God is realized in its beauty by the fact that it is limited to a group of people that He truly loves and He will never lose them. His entire being and His integrity and His character is at stake that He will lose none of them. Jesus said, I will lose none of them. And then He said, the Father which gave them Me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of My Father's hands. Brethren, that's the sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give me a minute we'll get there. I'm getting ahead of myself, but... The Lord is the, the love of God is exalted by understanding limited atonement. Amen. Hebrews chapter nine and verse twelve. Neither by the blood of goats and calves. Hebrews nine twelve. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Amen. Now, having obtained does not mean trying to make it possible having obtained eternal redemption for us. It's got to be limited. If you don't limit it, then everyone's redeemed. And we know that isn't true. It's the ones in heaven that sing, worthy is the Lamb that was slain and hath redeemed us to God by His blood. They're the ones that are redeemed. So every time we find a verse that speaks of the effect of the cross as an accomplished thing, that proves limited atonement because... If it did not, then everyone would be saved. If Jesus died for all men, then all men have obtained eternal redemption. 
The elect obtained eternal redemption when Jesus Christ came before God the Father and took the book of the covenant out of His hand. Do you follow that logic? That is just basic reading the Bible. When it says in this verse, He has obtained eternal redemption for us. And when did that happen? 2,000 years ago, when Jesus ascended up into heaven and through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God. Go read the rest of the chapter. Our eternal redemption was obtained, completed, finished. Therefore, it's limited because not all are redeemed. Therefore, the design must have been limited. If it were not, all would be redeemed because it says he obtained eternal redemption. Of course, it says he obtained eternal redemption for us. And that's a whole, that's a whole series of arguments on its own. Because the Bible wasn't ever written to the world at large. The Bible was written to the saints of God that believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible was given to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. All other nations on earth were left in total, abject, dark, black ignorance. We call them the Dark Ages. That's what, that's what the world was like when God re- restricts His Word from anyone. The Word of God was given to the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, these epistles were written to the churches of Jesus Christ. These epistles weren't tracts to be, to be broadcast in cities. These weren't left at movie theaters. These weren't left at restaurants when they gave tips. These are the words of God written to the churches of Jesus Christ where there were saints that had been called out of this world with the grace of God and had accepted and believed and, and followed and obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this message is to them. And so throughout the Bible we read that He did it for us. For our sins. For us. For our sins. Because who's Paul writing? In every case, Paul is writing to the saints of God at Rome. The saints of God at Corinth. And the saints that were Hebrew brethren throughout the world. So Hebrews 9 tells us that He obtained eternal redemption. Let's come back to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and see what He obtained there. We're looking at the results of the atonement. And the results prove that He only died for the elect. Because the results would prove too much if He died for everyone. Everyone would be saved. You, you young people, you're being reminded of a precious jewel that you have. One, one facet of the jewel of truth. The other churches in our city, though they call themselves Baptist churches, do not believe this. Those of you that go to Christian schools do not believe this. You are being shown the truth. And the Lord and I and your parents need you to hold it fast, lest it ever be taken away from you. You love this doctrine. And when you have opportunity, stand up for it. That doesn't mean every time is an opportunity. Sometimes discretion is the better part of valor. Sometimes even Paul would leave town, even in a basket, to get away and save his neck. Knowing that he had brethren left there that would spread the gospel. He was going on to a new city. Romans 5.10, it hardly gets better than this. When this was read this morning by our brother, it was so precious, this tenth verse. Look at it and read it as I read it to you. Romans 5.10 For if... When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. 
Does that sound like anyone's going to be lost for whom Jesus died? What condition were they in when Jesus died for them? Enemies. What did Jesus accomplish in this verse? He reconciled them to God. If you're reconciled to God, can God send you to hell? If you're reconciled to God, it's impossible. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the... What caused the reconciliation? The death of His Son. So the death of His Son was limited to those that are reconciled to God. And not all are reconciled to God. Only the elect are reconciled to God. Much more shall we be saved by His life. Not only did He die for the elect, He's now in heaven interceding for them. And the Apostle Paul says, if His death was so valuable in gaining our reconciliation, just think what His life is doing right now. He's standing in the presence of God right now, reminding His Father of what He did for us. Not that the Father needs... Listen, this kind of language is for you. The Bible's written for you. God doesn't need to be reminded. I hope you understand that, and I hope you understand when it says this, that now His life is being exerted to save us. We're saved. There's not a chance of us being lost. But look at what the verse says. It says when, it doesn't say when we were accepting Jesus. It doesn't say when we went forward to the Billy Graham crusade, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. It says when we were enemies, we were reconciled. That is a past event. We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Jesus Christ died only for those that are reconciled to God. And who are reconciled to God? The elect. Amen. So we're arguing from the results. Let's argue from the objects. Let's jump ahead and skip 20 reasons and uh, look at some of the what the Bible says about the objects of the atonement. We've looked at the design. We've looked at the results. Let's look at some of the objects. Come to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. You ought to sit and listen to these people. What do I mean by these people? The other 499 churches in Greenville County. Who did Jesus die for? All men. He wants to save all men. Oh, He wants to. huh? Yeah, He wants to. How does He get them saved? We have to send missionaries out to tell them to say the sinner's prayer and they can all be saved. Oh, we have to send missionaries out. If God wants to save all of them, why in the history of the world... Has he restrained the gospel from 90% of the earth's population? If Jesus had to die, and then we had to get the gospel to them, why was the gospel only sent to a small portion of the human race? Under both testaments. Well, that's because men were lazy. Do you mean to tell me I'm going to hell because Jesus worked hard and men were lazy? tell you something i am so thankful even though even though there's many churches in this city with much larger crowds than this one i don't care if there was no one here and i had to preach to myself i care a little bit but i'm thankful that i get to tell about a savior that has no problems like that at all he will save every single one that he came to save and the whole bible is consistent with that look at second timothy chapter 2 and verse 10 2 Timothy 2.10 Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sakes, 
that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Notice, the Apostle Paul limited his efforts to the elect. Now, since Paul was the greatest apostle Jesus Christ ever had, if Jesus Christ died for all men, why did Paul limit his efforts to the elect? Because Jesus didn't die for all men. I hope you can follow the logic of reading the Bible. Paul limited his efforts to the elect because Jesus Christ had limited his efforts to the elect. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Oh, before you, before you leave 2 Timothy 2, jump to verse 19. 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. I like words like that. There's no book that's ever been written with stronger, grander language than the King James Bible. Right. Now the foundation of God standeth sure. Does that just make you feel secure? Amen. Now the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are His. Amen. Salvation is built on a foundation of this. The Lord knoweth them that are His. Salvation is not built on the foundation that you know the Lord. Salvation is built on the foundation that the Lord knows you. That's what's going to count. It's the words, I never knew you, that are going to count in that day. We want to hear the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. We want to hear the words, Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me. When Jesus Christ speaks to His Father... That's 2 Timothy 2.19. Obviously, it's limited to those that the Father knows. Let's come back to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. This is just a sample and a survey, brethren. As the clock races on, as the minute hand spins like it's a top. This is just a survey. Oh, for those of you that love the truth, you can get into the outline later like I have been. And there's, there's lots of links attached at the end if you really want to plumb some of the depths of God's great love for His people. Ephesians 5 and verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. Jesus Christ loved the church. Acts 20.28 20, tells us that God shed His blood for the church. If God's love is directed toward the church, what does that tell us? It limits the love of God and it limits the sacrifice of Christ to the church. Meaning the body of His elect. Meaning the body of His people. Meaning the family of God. Meaning the churches of Jesus Christ where the elect gather. Jesus loved the church and gave Himself for it. Now listen, if this verse means, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved everyone. What should a husband do? Should he love all women? Including his wife? Or did Jesus have particular and special and effective and devoted love for his church? As the next two verses are going to tell us. There is a limiting factor in Ephesians 5.25 because it says Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. It doesn't say he loved everyone and gave himself for them because then his love for the church would be meaningless. It wouldn't have accomplished anything and it wouldn't be special and how could it motivate anyone? Then it says in verse 26 that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. 
It tells me exactly why Jesus Christ died in order to make the church a holy and spotless bride for himself. And not everyone is part of the holy and spotless bride, but only those God gave to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he saved every single one of them. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Oh, we used to sing the song, There's a New Name Written Down in Glory. Can, I'll tell you something about my personal experience of grace. I never believed that. I was always in doubt of my salvation. Because I knew that I had never done anything to justify the God of heaven. This is how I've worded it since I was 18 years old. I knew I had never done anything to justify the God of heaven bending over on His throne to write my name in the book of life. When I was at Bob Jones University, and they would say, every head bowed and every eye closed. If you know without a doubt you were to die today that you'd go to be in heaven, Raise your hand. And I'd have to make a choice. I raise my hand and lie. Or I leave my hand down and have the soul winners coming after me. Whoa! That was a tough choice. So I guess I'll go ahead and lie in chapel. If I died, I'd know I'm going to heaven. Now why wasn't I sure of my salvation? Because my salvation had been taught to me that it was what I did, not what Jesus Christ did. Because Jesus Christ did everything for those in hell as those in heaven. God the Father had loved both groups just as much. And the Holy Spirit had convicted both groups just as much. And I knew better than that. Now, how did I know better than that? Brain power? Forget it. You know better than that. It wasn't brain power. It was the grace of God in my heart that left me totally without assurance of my salvation until I heard the truth. And it's by the grace of God that we have heard the truth. We have heard the truth. The grace of God has shown it to us. We have a victorious Savior. Look at what it says in these verses. John chapter 6. Now these are just so simple and you know them well. But we can't forget them. John 6.38 Jesus said, For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me. That of all which He hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. God gave Jesus Christ a mission. And that mission was to save all those that God had given to Him. When did God give us to Jesus Christ? We're told in the Bible over and over. Before the foundation of the world. Before the world began. God gave a special group of people to Jesus Christ. Not that they were special. They were special because God gave them to Jesus and made them special. We were all sinners by ourselves. And he's, look what he says. I can't, I'm going to do my Father's will. I'm not going to lose any of them. And I'm going to raise them up again at the last day. Does that sound like for whom he did foreknow, he also did glorify? That there's no one lost between the foreknowledge of God and the glorification of sinners? Because Jesus says, I'm going to raise them all up again at the last day. That is glorification. He will make sure that the job gets done. That's why we have in Romans chapter 8, and I'm running out of time, Romans chapter 8, it says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who is He that condemneth? It is Christ that died. It's all wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ and the predestinating purpose of God that sent Jesus Christ to die for the elect. Not one will be lost. 
and for them to think that most are going to be lost. And they use that as a club over the saints of God. Do you know there isn't a verse in any of the epistles of the New Testament telling New Testament saints in churches to worry about the Great Commission? Not one single sentence. That Great Commission was fulfilled by the apostles, and the men that the apostles have ordained have done the work of evangelists ever since then. But there's not a verse in all of the epistles of the New Testament about saints fulfilling the Great Commission. Because the Great Commission is not necessary for the salvation of God's elect. The Great Commission got the Gospel into all the world and it's been perpetuated by men ordained by the apostles to tell the elect about what Jesus Christ did for them. Jesus didn't say, I'll lose none of them except where a pastor's lazy and watches too much football on Saturdays. Jesus didn't say, I'll lose none of them except those that like to bowl or those that like to hunt or those that like to sleep in. Just think if your eternal destiny depended upon ministers being energetic. You're going to hell. Do you know what we used to call the ministry? The non-profit profession. You know, most ministers choose the ministry because they want to retire on the job. It's a shame. The Apostle Paul outworked anyone you'll ever meet. And all ministers ought to follow the pattern of the Apostle Paul. We're here in John chapter 6, and look, it couldn't be any plainer than that. The Father had a will. Jesus Christ came to do it. And what was that will? We are told plainly, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. All that the Father gave me. Now, if anybody's worrying about verse 40, let's go ahead and read verse 40. And this is the will of Him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. Verse 40 is giving a descriptive piece of evidence about those who can lay hold of eternal life and know that they are God's elect. Right. Because once you hear that Jesus died for the elect and the elect only, the next obvious question you want to ask is, how do I know that I'm one of God's elect? Well, verse 40 tells you. If you see the Son and believe on Him, you're going to have eternal life and you're going to be raised up at the last day. Let's come over to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. John 10 and verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Is that verse enough? What does it say about those who aren't his sheep? He didn't lay down his life for them. I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 15. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Do these verses mean he laid down his life for the goats? Or do these verses mean he did not lay down his life for the goats? Because He laid down His life for the sheep. Verse 28, And I give unto them eternal life. Who does He give eternal life to? The sheep. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of My hand. My Father which gave them Me, there's election, My Father which gave them Me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of My Father's hand. I lay down my life for the sheep, verse 11. I lay down my life for the sheep, verse 15. I give unto them eternal life, verse 28. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Does that sound like sure salvation for the sheep? Look at verse 26. He turns to the Pharisees that are listening to this sermon and he says, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. 
Wow! He turns to those listening to him that were the Pharisees and that hated him in their hearts, and he said, but you are not of my sheep. I lay down my life for my sheep. I lay down my life for my sheep. I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish. No man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand, but you are not any of them. Do you know what the the city of Greenville is teaching today? If you want to be a sheep of Jesus Christ, then just believe on Him and you can get yourself into that number. But notice what the verse says in verse 26. It says, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. When you believe, it's evidence that you are one of the sheep of Christ because you know the voice of Christ. You can't believe to become a sheep. You believe because you are a sheep. And you don't believe because you're not a sheep. But He died for the sheep. You know, Jesus Christ is going to gather all nations before Him. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 34. He's going to put the sheep on His right hand. He's going to put the goats on His left. He's going to turn to those on His right hand and say, Enter the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Do some of you quizzers know that verse? Matthew 25, 34. Enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What's He going to say to the goats on His left? Depart. Ye cursed into everlasting fire. Ye cursed? Now would you please tell me how Jesus Christ died on the cross and suffered the wrath of God for men that are still under the curse? They're still cursed. They were never made at one with God. They were never reconciled. They were never redeemed. There is a huge gulf made in the Bible between the elect and the non-elect. And it is not unfair of God to choose some to salvation, although it is pure grace that does it. It is pure grace that He would choose any. Romans chapter 8. Well, on your way there, stop at John 17. John 17 and verse 2, these are, these are verses that we know so well. But brethren, those of you that know them so well and have heard them so many times, do you understand the importance of our children knowing them? Or this doctrine is going to go to the grave with us. Now the Lord is able to maintain His truth. But I'll tell you what He said. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. And we have got to keep the truth by our children learning it. John 17, 2. Children, Jesus Christ is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane just before Judas arrives. In John 17, and he says, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Notice, when Jesus Christ is speaking to God the Father, he only talks about some men, not all men. Jesus is about to go to the cross, but he's not talking about all men. He's talking about those that the Father gave him. He's going to give eternal life to them. You've given me power over all flesh. I'm able to give eternal life and to save as many as you have given me. And I will save them. As he prays to his Father. Now come on to Romans chapter 8. We had that read to us this morning also. Romans chapter 8. These are some of the most comforting verses in all the Bible. From Romans 8.28 to the end of the chapter, some of the grandest language, not some, it is the grandest language ever written. It tells us that when we are suffering, 
Verse eight, it's talking about suffering. Right. Verse 18 says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Amen. When you're suffering and you have troubles, you come right here to verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Why do all things work together for good to them that love God? Because they're the called according to God's purpose. God has a great purpose in them, and he is going to realize that purpose, and not a single one is going to be lost. For whom he did foreknow, and it starts with God's foreknowledge, and that is not God's foreknowledge of what you're going to do, because the Bible tells us that when God looked down upon the children of men, Psalm 14, Psalm 58, to see what the children of men were going to do, they all hated him, they all were out of the way, none understood, none sought after him. There was none righteous, no, not one. This foreknowledge is a choice to know you as a person. That's this foreknowledge. It's not foreknowledge of what you're going to do. It's foreknowledge of you. Can you believe that? Believe it. Jesus would say, believest thou this? Believe it. For whom he did foreknow. It doesn't say for what he did foreknow. He foreknew you. For whom he did foreknow. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. God's purpose is there described. God's purpose started with choosing to know you, and it ended with glorifying you. In between is your justification. You were justified by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that is our question this morning, for whom did Jesus die? He died for those foreknown by God, predestinated by Him, called, and the ones that will eventually be glorified, and no others. Because there's no one lost in this chain of connection. So that it comes to verse 32. I've already helped you with verse 31 earlier in this message. We come to verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Now when it says us all, do you know who that us all is? It's every member at the Church of Rome and Paul. You say, well, what about me? Yes, when you, read the church, when you read the book of Romans and you're just like the saints that were at Rome. This us all is not being posted on billboards and at malls. This us all was sent to the church at Rome. He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? How shall he not? Paul is asking a question, and his question is teaching this lesson. It is impossible for those that Jesus Christ died for, not to realize every other single spiritual blessing that God has in store. It is impossible. Because this is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God gave His Son for men, how much more is He going to give all the other things? And I don't care what you make it. If you say that a man has to have faith in order to get to heaven, I'm going to say God gives it to him. And so the ones that end up in heaven are the ones that Jesus Christ died for and no more. And Jesus Christ did not die for any more. Who shall anything to the charge of God's elect? What are you going to charge the elect with? What do they have to do to get to heaven? Jesus Christ has already done it. It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who is God making intercession? Who is Jesus Christ making intercession for? Is He making intercession for men that are in hell? Well, that's all, that's, that would be all the world if you're going to apply it that way. Jesus Christ is making intercession for His elect and He will lose none of them. 
and He'll raise them up again at the last day. His death was for the elect and His life is for the elect and none of them will be lost because who shall anything the charge of God's elect and if Christ died for them, they're going to get every other blessing that God has in store. And then it goes on to say, I am persuaded there is not a thing in this world that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love in Christ Jesus is not upon those in hell because that would be a travesty to these words and there would be no comfort in them at all to us if that love in Christ Jesus is upon those in hell as well. First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. Children, we believe in limited atonement. We believe Jesus Christ died for the elect and He'll not lose a single one of them. He absolutely, finally, and totally finished the salvation for every single one of them. He obtained redemption for them. He reconciled them to God. He was their atonement. He was their propitiation. He forgave their sins. And God will remember their sins no more. Their sins have been washed away as far as the east is from the west. But everyone in hell is still a sinner. Revelation chapter 21 tells me that in hell it's liars, all murderers, All whoremongers shall have their part in the lake of fire. Notice, they're still sinners with specific sins because those sins were not blotted out by the Lord Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Where did we learn about that? Was it Romans chapter 8? It was. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's blood and Jesus Christ's obedience. To whom is it applied? By this verse. The elect. Come on. Caffeine, please, at brunch time. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's blood is sprinkled and His obedience is applied to the elect. Because you're elected to it and chose to it. You know, we were put into our state of condemnation by one man. Adam. Adam sinned for us and condemned the human race. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5 that a second man, Jesus Christ, obeyed for us and saved all those in Him. The Bible puts it this way. As in Adam all die... Even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. All that are in Christ shall be made alive because all that are in Christ, Jesus died for them. All that are in Christ, Jesus said, I will lose none of them, but raise them up again at the last day. This is the truth of the gospel. I had 80. I gave you about 12. You can look at the rest later. I'm sorry. When you go into the verses... There are verses in the Bible that men try to use against us. All the verses depend upon words like world, whole world, all, all men, every, every man. Now, we've got a problem. We are to rightly divide the word of truth so that the whole Bible says one message. Now, they ignore the verses that I just went over because they don't know how to handle them. They will get rid of Romans 9, 10, and 11 by just saying that applies to Jews and doesn't apply to salvation. How how do we deal with verses that use the word world and all and every? Well, first of all, we already know what the Bible teaches. Then we look at those verses and we look at their context and we remember that the word world, all and every is used in the Bible with a wide range of latitude and usually doesn't mean every single one without exception. It usually does not. They're just general words. 
And their doctrine hangs on those general words. When anyone throws the word all at you, you know what I, how I respond. I say I deny the doctrine that the Apostle Paul was a practicing sodomite. And they get a cloudy look in their face and say, why would you say that? Because I used the word all. Well, because Paul said this, buddy. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. If all's going to mean all, and that's all all means, then Paul was a practicing sodomite in order to win the sodomites. Because he said, I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Don't you try to build some argument based on some little word like all when the Bible uses all in such, such wide latitude. Listen, I'll tell you a verse, and you should remember this verse. You should remember the one I just gave you. First, that's 1 Corinthians 9.22. The Bible uses the combination all the world. Now that's pretty good, isn't it? All the world must mean everyone, past, present, and future, in every continent, nation, those that were dead, born, conceived, and in the womb. It's got to mean all of them, doesn't it? When the Bible says all the world. Well, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, There went a decree out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Let me tell you something. Not 1% of the human population was taxed by the decree from Caesar Augustus, and yet the words were used, all the world. Do you think the Egyptians under Pharaoh were taxed? Do you think the American Indians were taxed? How about the Eskimos? Did they have to produce some salmon? Did they need polar bear furs to, to buy off Caesar Augustus? Come on! Believe the Bible! Amen. Don't let them do that to you. If their argument is based on those general words the Bible uses in such a general way, they have no argument. They have a Savior that didn't accomplish what He came to do. You look up the word world and look it up in the, look it up in the Gospel of John. Look up every occurrence of the word world in the Gospel of John and see how limited John uses that word world. Let me tell you why he uses the word world and all and every in many places in the New Testament. There's a reason. God only dealt with Israel for 1,500 years. When we come to the New Testament, he began dealing with other nations, and so he used broad words to explain to those Jews it is no longer limited to your nation only. It involves all the nations of the earth. And the word world is used in the New Testament, check out Romans 11 and verse 12, as a synonym for the Gentiles. Because Jesus had to continually fight the opposition of the Jews that thought salvation was limited to their nation. And so he expanded it with words like, For God so loved the world, because he's sitting talking to a ruler of the Jews. For God so loved the world. And what does he mean by that? God so loved the world of his elect that were out of every nation. You say, how do you know that it means that? Because God doesn't love everybody. Go read Psalm 5, five, Psalm 11.5, and the, and the words of Jesus Christ in the last day when he says, I never knew you. How, do, how in the world are you going to make compatible, I never knew you, which is a term, an expression of affection with the fact that God loved God did not love them. You know, they, they quote 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not willing that any should perish. The Lord is not willing that any should perish. Wow. I thought we read in Romans chapter 9 that He was willing that the vessels of wrath should perish. Well, now we've got a problem, don't we? But there isn't a problem. They've never read the Bible. These people go for sound bites. Because when you go back and you quote the whole verse of 2 Peter 3, 9, here's what it sounds like. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to 
Usward. Not willing that any should perish. Who's he not willing for, to have any perish? Usward. The saints that Peter wrote to. Right. Read the verse. Don't let them take away the truth of the gospel from you. Somebody will say to me, why are there verses that sound like Jesus loves everybody and that Jesus died for everybody? Why are there verses that sound that way? My answer to you for this moment is this. Why are there so many verses that sound like baptism is necessary for salvation? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Why are the verses in the Bible that sound like baptism is necessary for salvation? Because God gave a rope long enough to make a noose to hang yourself if you want to depart from the grace of God found in this book. You say, do you mean God would confuse men? You bet God would confuse men. Ever read about the Tower of Babel? There's much more that could be said. I could go on for months with this subject. I've done enough. If you want to know, go look at the outline. Read your Bible. Read Romans 5, Romans 8, Romans 9. Read them. Read Romans 9, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10. Read them. Delight in them. Read, read Isaiah 53. Read Isaiah 53. He shall see his seed and shall prolong his days. Isaiah 53, when Jesus is hanging on the cross in prophecy, he shall see his seed. Jesus Christ knew exactly who he was dying for. His seed. Who were they? The ones the Father had given him. When our Lord Jesus Christ comes before God the Father with us in the last day, he is going to say, Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me. Not one will be lost. He died for them. He saved them. He finished the work. Praise his great and glorious name. Amen.